So I noticed you have a little bit of a funny, funny voice today. Is that just because you're crying about your Dodgers? A little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I figured. You, know. you, you are one of the most amazing individuals that I've ever met in the sense that you, you know at all times where every Dominican baseball player is in the world. Yeah, that's how we watch uh, Major League Baseball, <laughs> following our guys. But, you know, um, I felt really sorry for, um, for Cachal, you know, like he's a great pitcher and then yeah. has this thing, yeah. you know, it's, it's a shadow. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. So now you're an Altuve fan. Yeah. So I don't know when this is going to air, but, you know, they're in the World Series again. That little guy is unbelievable. He, all those guys that are less than five foot eight, I love in yeah. baseball. He just yeah. makes me feel good. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Let's roll on here, folks. Uh, this is Mark Griffin, I'm the Director of Customer Solutions here at Constructs, a team of software engineering experts led by legendary author Steve McConnell. We believe every software team can be more successful at delivering higher levels of business value, and every episode we talk with one of our consultants exploring a recent engagement, and we describe the issues we're faced with and how we solve them. And we have a little fun along the same way. So let's get to it. So today in the studio, I have with uh, me Melvin Perez. Melvin's been here before. Uh, welcome back. Thank you. Um, just, just to recap a little bit about Melvin, he's been here nine years at Constructs. He co-founded a, a company in the Dominican Republic where he ran the technical division for 14 years. He has an MS uh, degree in software engineering and, and course completion work for a PhD at Rochester Institute of Technology. Um, he is a certified software development professional, a uh, SBC4, a CSM, a PSM, and a PSD. Did I leave anything out? No, I That's think it's fine. Pretty much it, right? Okay. <laughs> That's good. Cool. So today we're going to talk about a couple of, of uh, recent engagements you were on um, that, that I think are interesting for folks who are looking at Scrum and looking at, at other aspects of Agile practices, one of which happens to be Kanban. And um, th with this recent engagement you talked about uh, to me a little bit a while ago was um, they are concerned about having um, a lot of work in process. Um, and, and you went in there and you wanted to verify first that that's what they were, they were facing, correct? Correct. Uh, so in this type of engagement, um, what I like to do is to first understand what is the current state of the process um, or their environment. Um, so what I did in this case was to um, essentially put on the board the seven types of waste and ask the team, you know, using uh, gradients of agreement. Sometimes you cannot just go for a yes or no answer. You like to distinguish a, let's say, wholehearted yes from a lukewarm yes. So um, I put the seven type of waste and I put on a scale that will go from this is not happening or we have a little bit of that, or we have too much of that waste. Um, so using that, um, I was able to collect their inputs in terms of what is actually happening. And it was obvious that definitely they have too much work in progress, but also this exercise uh, exposes that they were having uh, some other type of waste, or um, I would say some of the form of waste that are also consequences of having too much work in progress. So it was a good starting point because it's triggered very good conversation between them and having agreement on what exactly was happening. Okay. Well, let, let, let's go through, um, for those of, of, of us like me that don't know exactly what the uh, seven forms of waste are, you, you gave me a list before we started here. One is work in process. One is extra features. 
relearning is the third one, handoffs or fourth one, task switching, delays and defects. We talked a little bit about work in progress. How about extra features? How does that affect, how does that consider waste? Well, um, extra features are things that we ended up building that nobody's using. So I guess um, gotcha. you use okay. something like Microsoft Office. So there's a lot of features there that you don't use, Gilding you know, in detail. Yeah. <laughs> so gotcha. maybe you use 10% of it. But then once you have invested the time, you know, it will take longer for you to release the product. And once you have it, it's difficult for you to take it out of the products. So and I have a bigger product, it's more difficult, and that's basically, you know, you, you ended up having a more complex product and a lot of work around it. No makes total sense. How about relearning? Re- uh, relearning is an interesting one. I would say relearning, um, it is better to see it from a rework standpoint. So okay. relearning is kind of uh, working again on something that we learned before, um, and we have to somehow revisit um, that that work, and usually something happens. Refreshing yourself. Yeah, okay. refresh yourself. and. Right you know, in order to redo the work in the right way. So is there is there a certain level of that behavior that might be acceptable? You may, the team might defer it, put it aside, and bring it back, and then that you have to kind of redo that every time you revisit it? Or is that is that something you really should try and ferret out ahead of time? I would like to not have that at all, but obviously we're in software development, so we cannot anticipate everything up front. So there will be cases in which... Um, you know, there was some knowledge that we didn't have at that point, and then we're coming back to um, implement the work the right way after you get the knowledge. So it's hard to for us to say we will be able to remove it completely, um, but you want to make sure that this is not something um, that when you look back and say, oh, this is something we knew, um, we should have applied our learning, you know, the right way right from the beginning instead of redoing it again. Okay, that yeah. makes total sense. Um, how about handoffs? What do you mean by handoffs when you talk about about waste in that context? Well, the 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 handoffs actually the kind of ways they introduce is that when you pass the work to somebody else uh, to continue the workflow, uh, you need to pass that work with a, some documentation so they can understand what is the current state, what they need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the fact that we're handing the work the, the work to somebody else. It's enforces for us to have maybe more documentation that we need. Usually, you, you will address that waste by having cross-functional teams that are, you know, sitting next to each other, so they're seeing what is going on. So you don't need to necessarily document a lot of that work. So it's a one way for you to see that kind of waste. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So would I, I have a sort of a peripheral question on that, and that has to do with, um, for example. Uh, if you're dealing with a team that has met, is using this in a medical um, validation verification process, right? Where in a traditional development sense, you would be building products straight through to a, re- a releasable candidate. In the case of um, perhaps in the medical diagnostic equipment space, you might be building something that can be audited mm-hmm. by, by an external auditor. Correct. Um, like FDA or something. So. How do you differentiate, you know, there's handoffs certainly that has to be associated with that, right? Mm -hmm. When you go into a documentation phase that's required, it's not really part of your release schedule. Mm -hmm. So is that a exception to the the handoff possibly, that you have somebody else that's working on that in in your agile environment? The way I see it is that in that type of product, 
that documentation you're talking about is part of the product. It, it is something that you cannot release the product without it. It's, it's subject to be uh, compliant and to be audited. Right. So it's part of the product, but there's, in an, an, let's say that we're working on, on a website or, I don't know, a web store, um, it is not required for you to have that level of documentation that has right. been, I would say, instilled by the, the handoffs. So in that case, it's, it's part of the engineering process, but it's not part of the product. Um, so for me to call it waste, I would say, if it's not something that is not adding value, if it's something that is preventing me to you know, to release this product, um, then in right. that sense, I will basically So there's the value the word again. It's a, good, it's a good way to keep that in mind when you're dealing with a product. And, in, and even the, the team has to define what the net definition of product is there in that case because it, it, does, it does require that documentation in, mm -hmm. in that sense. So Correct. That's a good answer. I appreciate Correct. that. So next one is task switching. Tell, tell me a little bit about that in terms of waste. How does that introduce waste into the environment? Well, I guess uh, you have experienced that already. So when you have um, too many things on the plate, you try to, to make progress in each one of them. Usually you go back and forth, and that essentially um, will introduce you know, delays in your process. You will, maybe you will be able to make progress on all the three tasks, but you will not be able to finish any one of them. Um, so I would say that multitasking or context switching is as a consequence of having too much work in progress and trying to make progress in all of them. So the best thing you can do is to focus, finish one, and then take the other one instead of trying to do, you know, three or four things. But my at boss time. says that I have to do two or three things at once. Yeah. How, but, do you, how do you explain that to your boss? Well, the, the thing is we need to look at how much are we getting done, right? So we need to look at accomplishment. If we're being driven by having people busy all the time, oh, I just want you to see that you're actually busy working on many things and you're trying to keep the work busy at the same time. So like all these three tasks, we like to see, oh, you made 1% progress, then, oh yeah, we're happy. But that should not be the way we manage business. We would like to see things getting done, things that you can put on the hands of the customer and get value out of it. The other one is just basically keeping everybody busy, keep trying to keep everybody right. happy, but right. you're not making anybody happy. Right. So thrashing, you know, it's another, another way of thinking about context switching, right? You're not getting anything done, you just keep moving and moving and moving and eventually something falls out. Correct. Right? Yeah. Correct. So you have, there's a general category you have with delays here. Is that just handoff, people waiting for things, people people not ready to receive information? Yeah, those are some uh, forms of delays that would introduce delays in your process. Usually you're waiting for um, a worker or you're waiting for information, you're waiting to confirm something, or maybe it's a process that takes too long, and then you have delays inserted in your process. Right. Uh, so those are the things that we also need to look at how to reduce to improve flow. Is, are those things that you might look at in, say in the scrum context, you might look at that in, the, in a retrospective? The team might revisit that or in, and how would, you, how would you kind of look at the delays that were associated with that, that in a particular sprint or over a PI increment? Well, I would say that uh, Scrum itself not necessarily will promote um, this kind of thing. It has to be something that if the team or the coach of the team has knowledge of this lean um, form of waste, they will essentially be looking at it. They are aware of those, and they will be looking at 
them either during retrospective or during the execution of the sprint. So it's not necessarily very common to see um, a scrum team looking at these different things unless they're having, you know, really bad outcome out of the sprint. But it's any, any opportunity in which you can have that feedback to look at your process is, is a good moment for you to look at it. We have too much delay here. Okay. You don't have to wait until the end of the retrospective. You can see it on a daily basis. You see that this work is getting blocked or you're waiting for this, uh, for this person to respond for three days. That's already something you need to take action on. You don't necessarily want to wait until, the, I would say, the retrospective. The retrospective is, uh, I would say, is an official moment for us to talk about it and think in terms of the future, is this something that we should be addressing and minimizing? Yeah. yeah. Right, exactly. So might a team do this? They might look at the definition of ready if there were delays and wait states because something wasn't properly ready for to enter a sprint, would that be an appropriate place to make a correction and say, next time through this process, we're not going to have this issue because we're going to redefine what ready means? Yeah, it could be, um, I would say, one of the artifacts that you're going to be um, adjusting based on that uh, realization that you have too much waste or any other, you know, uh, delays or any other kinds of this uh, form of waste. Um, you know, definition of ready is also something that you can use and definition of done as well to uh, address rework, uh, relearning, something that we mentioned before. Sure. Because you're making sure that whatever you're, you're doing in a given step in your workflow, once you move it to the next step, it doesn't have to come back. You're minimizing the chances that this will come back because it was, I would say, incomplete or inaccurate. Right. So the, those are, in the Kanban language, they will call this uh, policies that you can have in every step of your process. Sure. Well, that makes total sense. So when you, you did this um, sort of gradients of agreement, decision-making, voting kind of thing, um, how, how solid was the work in process as, as the leader? Was that pretty much most of the team saw that as the biggest issue? Yes. And there was one outlier, say like a one. Always you know, one. It was always <laughs> one. Yeah. And <laughs> typically the manager. Um, oh. <laughs> so, um, so it will go from one through five, and, you know, the majority were on four. So um, that will give you an idea like, oh, definitely, they feel like this is too much work in progress. Sometimes, the, um, you know, these outliers, it's, it's important for us to have a conversation. Why do you think it's a one while the rest of the team is thinking is, you know, four or five? Uh, usually, it's just basically a misunderstanding of what work in progress means. It's like, well, to me, work in progress is things that you I'm guys are touching right now. Exactly. But not necessarily something that we already started working on. Uh, so that's why it's important for any team using... I would say a Kanban system to understand what is the commitment point because from that point on is when you're going to start tracking work in progress. If you put this into a, say, uh, let's say a, in the Scrum context, is once you move something into your sprint, that is already work, work in, in progress, progress right. because exactly. it's something that you already started doing some work, back refining it, uh, breaking it down into tasks if you do that. Um, estimating the work, so it's already in progress. So um, it was a good conversation. Um, well, the it other sounds like a good sounds like a really good method to use. I mean, it it, it sort of encourages sort of that collaborative decision making. You get stuff out in the open; people see it. Correct. There's you know, if there's ambiguity, it's not buried; it's actually surfaced. 
yeah. the discussion like that. Yeah, and this, there are some other flavors of these kind of techniques. You know, Fist of Five is another one. Um, Fist of Five. Fist okay. of Five. Okay. Um, and, you know, what you're trying to do is to make sure you have a clear understanding of how much in agreement we are. And it's part of a set of techniques that is called participatory decision-making. Okay. That's really good. I mean, it seems like that was really helpful to this particular team. Um, how often would you do something like that? I mean, is that something that you visit once and, and the team is comfortable for the future? Or is that something that maybe you periodically visit? Like where where is waste coming into the system at some point in time? Do you, do you have a, maybe a recommended pattern that a team might use that collaborative approach with? So in this case, if we're talking about uh, the forms of waste, um, I will essentially do this exercise as we did, and we're going to start experimenting, and we can do an experiment for two weeks, and then we're going to check, check again how well we're doing. This could be part of a retrospective. Okay. Even though there is not official retrospective in Kanban, but you can have it. You need to have implicit feedback loops, and you can go and check. Um, so I will do it, you know, with a cadence. It could be every every retrospective will check. Anything that you feel have changed in terms of the form of ways that we have in our system, anything that we need to pay attention to. Right. Um, so that, that definitely will be a good cadence for you to keep it. Cool. That's a great answer. You know, related to that, I guess in the same, in the same engagement you had with this particular client, um, you know, you were you actually asked to look at their Kanban board and to mm -hmm. dig dig in a little bit. And and what happened there, right? Did you there were some interesting things that you you got them to reveal as a result yeah. of doing that, right? Yeah. So um, there is a lot of uh, I would say teams are. They believe they're doing Kanban because they have a board as right. a to-do, doing, and done. And, you know, Kanban is more than that, right? So if you have a Kanban board, it has to reveal what is going on. It has to be um, kind of irradiating what is going on. You don't want to ask another question to know what is going on. You like to see it immediately. It has to be transparent. So when this team say, well, we have too much work in progress, say, okay, let's see it. Let's take a look at your Kanban board, and definitely they have those three columns to do, doing, and done. Um, and when I look at the doing, obviously, if I count the number of people in the team versus the number of items in that column, there were more items that people in the team said, like, oh, yeah, I can see that you have too much work in progress. What they were not revealing was, you know, what is... I would say waiting for information. What is something that may say, because they also have delays as one of the, I would say, highest rank, but I couldn't see in the board because the board will say everything is doing. Then so I asked the so question. So you have to dig into the work details more to find that information, right? Correct. Yeah. So when I asked them, how do you distinguish what is actively being worked from the other work that is essentially waiting for information or waiting for somebody to be available? And so, like, well, you can go and check the work item. But you could make it, you know, visible without me Have checking the work item, without right. digging for that information. Right. Right. So it was obvious that they were not revealing all the states in the workflow. And essentially that was uh, where we had to, to start working on to, I would say, refactor that Kanban board to reveal better what was going on. That makes sense. I mean, 
the fact that you want to have uh, that radiator showing everything that's mm-hmm. actually in process and mm-hmm. not and not obfuscating something because they just haven't raised it to the top level. Correct. So th- I guess you, you know this is not necessarily something that was unusual. You find that quite a bit in different different organizations where. It's not necessarily an exotic issue they have with Kanban. Mm-hmm. This might be just really applying it more rigorously to and being honest about what's what work is in progress. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Correct, and you know, is it is common to see these these boarding that way, like to do doing in progress in Scrum teams. And so, Scrum teams they would like to visualize work, but it's not, I would say, as implicit and as demanding as Kanban. Um, so usually they will see one of those boards say, oh, this is what we need in order to start doing Kanban. But um, a board is not Kanban. You still need to have work in progress. You need to have limits of those work in progress. I need to have an idea where we consider this our commitment point, what is our delivery point. If you don't have any of those two things, then you don't have a You're Kanban floating. system. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So how do you? Uh, um, what are good ways for teams to set um, whip limits. Is there are there some empirical guidelines that you tell people to use? Are there some analytical tools out there that people can use? I mean, w- what what have you run into? Yeah, so th- definitely there are different ways how to uh, set those whip limits. And I need to start with you know you have a workflow and that workflow has a sequence of steps. So the first decision you need to make is how are you going to be setting these whip limits? You can set a whip limit for each column or each, I would say, step in that workflow. Um, Let's say you have something like uh, preparation, implementation, review, done, right? So you may set whip limits for each one of those columns, and it could be a factor of the number of people you have on your team or the number of people in your team that can do that work. Um, That's that's one way for you to think about it, say, well, if we have three people that are going to be doing this particular task in our workflow, then you can say, one per team member. You can say 1.5 per team member. You can divide between the team team members. In other words, that will encourage more right. collaboration. So right. instead of saying three, we're going to have two. That means that somebody will need to be working with somebody else. So I would say it depends on what is the dynamics, what is happening in the team, what we would like to, um, you know, to instill in the team. If you'd like to improve collaboration, then you can go one way. If you like to, um, let's say, sometimes you may want to allow to have some degree of uh, multitasking. If you like, say we can have, let's say, eight possible work items if we have five. So that means somebody is maybe working on two. So when you have two, it's not not a big deal. Uh, Now, the the point is, um, you can also do this more experimentally. How do you assign this number, this initial number. We can start with those things I mentioned, like one per team member, but right, also right. one thing you can do is to observe what is going on. This is one of the principles in Kanban is to start with what you do now. So I would like to reveal what is happening. Like with this team, we'll say, okay, let's see how much you have in progress. We have, uh, I don't know, eight different um, work items in, in progress and you are only four. So it seems like there is some work in progress going on. So let's imagine that we will double this. You can't start like that. Well, okay, let's double it. What happens? So now you have 16, right? right. right? And then you're going to see how, how it goes. And you can say, we're going to have checkpoints every week and see how this is working. And then you're going to start decreasing this number of items in 20%. So we're going to decrease in 
20% every one of those cycles until you start seeing things, you know, Moving. getting better. Yeah. Yeah. And when you start seeing that things are going back to, you know, worse, then and you, you hit, say, you hit you know, a limit. Yeah. yeah, you hit a limit, then you stop and say, right. okay, this is one way to do it. So there is not necessarily, I would say, one way to do it. I prefer to do more kind of experimental uh, kind of thing with, you know, short period of time. It could be one week, two week for the team to realize how, how this is working. Uh, now, the, the point is, how are you going to know if something is working, if those whip limits are working properly or not? Well, it'll be in terms of your, I would say, your flow time, maybe, you know, uh, how much flow you're having, how many items you're getting in, in the down column after right. you start right. using those whip right. limits. So well, that's, a, that, that's the point of a radiator, though, right, is to show dynamically what's happening. And everybody on the team can see, wait, we're still waiting on this spot. Why is this, why is this stuck? Correct. Right. Correct. I'm trying to try and figure out a way to do that. Cool. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you really enjoyed that engagement. It sounds like it was a good little good little um, group of people to work with. Definitely, I love to you know to go and get into a team and see you know th- their problems directly instead of just having somebody saying a statement. We're having you know quality problems, productivity sure. problems. Sure. I like to go and see it and work with them hands on, and you know. Um, impact the team with something. In this case, we've refactored that uh, Kanban board. We introduced whip limits um, right from the beginning. There were, you know, a set of states that they want to focus on. Um, and we set the time to come back and see, you know, what had improved or are not in the process sure. after introducing those whip limits. Sure. And the other thing was to start, you know, tracking lead time. How long does it take to go from, uh, let's say, uh, to do to done? Exactly. That's cool. So let's, let's switch gears for a second. I, I have another engagement that you and I were talking about, which is this one is, is not necessarily in the trenches dealing with real-time um, thing. It's more dealing with long-term planning. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when most engineering teams are in the moment working in Scrum, you know, they're, they're sprint-focused, they're work-focused, they have all the ceremonies and they do all these uh, the planning and retrospective. They have a good definition of ready, a good definition of done. And then you have people asking the question about longer-term planning. How do you deal with longer-term planning in a, in a traditional Scrum environment? Because Scrum doesn't really focus on that. Right? So Correct. What, how do you, tell me a little bit about what the question was that got surfaced and, and, and some of the way, things you explored with this team. Yeah. So usually there would be um, different questions related to this topic and they will come like, but how are going to know when something will going to be done? How are we going to know what we're going to be releasing in this particular quarter or something like that? Um, and it's one of those common problems is, is basically lacking release planning in a way. Mm-hmm. Um so there were several questions sometimes when we talked about estimation and we talk about forecasting or deciding what to select for a given sprint. And they start basically asking all those questions. It means like they don't have a clear understanding how this whole process starts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Scrum doesn't have a name for this. Uh, Scrum start assuming that you have a product backlog. And they say that product backlog needs to be ordered, you know, it needs to be estimated and everything. But... Um, there is nothing in the Scrum Guide that will tell you, you know, how do you create this product backlog? How do you, I uh, will say, set the, you know, the mark about something that's going to go beyond the sprint? In the past, we used to have release planning as one of the meetings in Scrum, but 
it was removed from the scrum guide because it was considered maybe too prescriptive okay. and there are teams that can do more continuous. Um, so the way I answer that question is, well, uh, how far into the future you need to see. If you can have a team that is working a sprint by sprint and they will be done when they'll be done, you don't have anybody asking, we would like to know if this feature is going to be done by this particular date or not then obviously you can go without having, um, you know, any release plan ahead of time. But in most cases, most of our clients, we need to have some degree of longer-term planning. Um, obviously, we're not talking about planning for three years. We're talking about within right. the limits. Right. It's, uh, you need to think small. I would say the longest has to be like a quarter, you know, like for this quarter. Usually that's a typical cadence that most businesses would like to have. So it's something that a shareholder or a stakeholder in this environment would be asking for, right? Whether it's a business asking for the delivery of some feature set, whether there's a particular client that has promised a deal. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the manager of the organization or the VP or somebody continues to work to beat on the team saying, when am I going to get this? Yep, yep. Right? That's, that's uh, usually is how long it's going to take, when this is going to be done, how much of all of this will be able to get done in this uh, period of time. So do you, do you think executives in some respects struggle with this? I mean, particularly organizations, maybe they're new to Agile, where they're used to having more of the sequential view of what when things come out of the pipeline and now they're not sure. And mm -hmm. they, I mean, is there a certain level of up education that, that mm -hmm. might be helpful there? Yeah. Well, I would say that they believe that they were sure about what's going to happen in the future. It was an illusion, you know, <laughs> right, because we right. spent all this time creating this, you know, um, detailed plan up front. They feel like, oh, we have, we know what's going to happen. But in reality, they have never, uh, you know, um, known what's going to happen in reality. Now, in Agile, uh, you know, there are people that are going to like, take it to the extreme and say, like, oh, we're agile, we don't do release planning, which is not no necessarily estimates. <laughs> no, no estimates or right. stuff like that. Right, right. So <clears throat> our approach is to say, yes, I understand the business needs to have an answer, a reasonable answer to something like how long this is going to take or how much of this we can get done in a given period of time. So um, we promote to use release planning, even though it's a shorter scale we say, well, we need to get together and look at the backlog, estimate a backlog sufficiently that we can have an, an idea how big it is, have an idea, you know, how much of this work the team can get done in one sprint, roughly put a range around that and say, this is what you used to have in, a, let's say, a traditional fashion mm -hmm. with uh, all those detailed planning will take, you know, weeks and months to create. Now you can have a forecast that's going to be, I would say, more, um, you know, lighter but still every spring will tell you you know how how good that plan is right. in in right. essentially from that point it's a matter of tracking if you are within i would say a i would say good degree of uh, predictability okay so you mentioned a little bit about about continuous integration kind of things and and when you move away from thinking about projects in a discrete sense and start talking about um, potentially shippable or potentially releasable product on a continuous basis. How does that, how do you rationalize that as a manager who's nor normally used to looking at a Gantt chart and seeing things come out and now you're saying there really isn't a boundary to the edge of the project. We're going to continue to develop and release value in a continuous sense. How, does, how, do, how do people work with that? 
Well, I think it's a mental shift. Right. You know, um, you use applications on the iPhone or whatever device you have. You have an, uh, in a store. And you have all of these apps that are continuously releasing a new version, right? So you're not overly worried about, you know, when you're going to be getting a new version. At some point, you actually, you don't want to have a new version. You're right, like, right. I still haven't seen the previous one. So what we have seen is that once we start delivering continuously, we start basically stopping asking for those questions like how long this is going to take or, you know, those a typical question you have uh, for release planning, I would say, um, workshop, because they're getting value continuously. And they know that you are getting the most valuable piece that you can get in that time. So they start feeling less worried about it. Um, the thing with the project is that if you are, let's say, a product manager, right. and you have been planning project for, let's say, six months, a year, you know that if your feature is not within that project, you have to wait another year, maybe more because projects usually take to take longer. Sequence, right. But if you know, and this is very transparent, that we're saying, you know, we're going to be releasing what is most important. You can always see where is your feature, when it's coming. And if you're continuously releasing what is the most important, uh, um, you know, the most important work or most valuable, then you would not be too worried about it. But the other thing is also in terms of thinking, Sometimes we have a feature, and we feel like it has to be released completely. Right. But once you start digging into the details, you start finding what is the real value, what is the core value of these features. So you may identify a section within that feature that is represents the most value you can get, so and you can maybe a minimum viable feature act. Is a minimal like, is similar to like the yeah. same concept concept rises right. like the minimum marketable feature. Right. So it's extracting. From that big feature, what actually um, carries a lot of value? So that's give you more flexibility in terms of oh maybe I can just do this for this feature and then I can do the same thing with this other feature. So instead of having the mindset of implementing feature completely without looking at what is the value. In the old days with waterfall, a sales guy would go to a engineer who is sympathetic to their cause and they get skunk works going on in the background where someone to deliver value on the side that they could take to the client. In this particular case, it's more upfront, it's more visible, it's more, sure. you know, that clandestine operation that sales guys, yeah. those sales guys, you know, yeah. sort of, <laughs> it's just a pain. Well, that's really you good. You can tell from experience, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, one of the things that people ask for from a long-term planning perspective is, is the notion of funding and costing, right? In, in an executive session, you have people who are asking the question, mm -hmm. right? How much is this going to cost me to build this feature or build this series of features? Mm -hmm. or, or can I, I mean, even to the extent that, that a team gets into a project and you realize, wow, this is way more than we thought, and you, maybe you do the T-shirt sizing and it says, you know what, we just don't, we pull the plug. Mm -hmm. And there's an advantage to doing that in an agile sense because you don't waste six months or a year before you get to that point. You don't spend a lot more money. Yeah. So maybe this decision-making process where you're thinking about long-term planning can, can be used in the financial side of that as yeah. well, right? Yeah, you got it right. Yeah. I Thanks. think we should interview you next time. Ah, boy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Be sure to tune in next time for another edition of the Constructs Podcast. And until then, this has been your host, Mark Griffin. Cody Madison is your engineer, and Devin Musgrave is your producer. Have a great next sprint. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you found us. If you have comments or would like to talk to one of our practitioners, 
or you have ideas for a future podcast, reach out via email using comments at constructs.com. Again, that's comments at constructs.com. We'd love to hear from you.